Morning TRC, we're going to uh, continue kind of a study to where we're looking at different uh, cultural issues right now. And um, what I thought I would do is kind of address what I've heard over and over again as the solution, which is that we just need to see everyone as the image of God and we're all the image of God together. And then that's the solution to things like racism and disunity and all of that sort of thing in our culture. Uh, of course, I would push back and say that's not the answer. Uh, the answer is going to be Jesus Christ. Uh, but I wanted to look at this idea first and foremost that we're the image because uh, I actually think that what has been uh, brought into our churches and brought into the culture is largely the, the old Enlightenment, inclusive, egalitarian idea of the fatherhood of God. And the fatherhood of God is being brought in through the idea of the image. And so what I wanted to go through and look at the verses to talk about the image and to argue that actually not everyone is the image of God as it's being claimed by numerous churches, numerous people, almost universally uh, in our culture. So let's first begin in a word of prayer. Father, we seek to exalt you through your word Uh, We want to know the truth uh, because we want to say what is true. We want to think of the world correctly. We want to be able to glorify you in the way that you have glorified yourself through your son. We ask now that uh, if we are your images, that we would see that in uh, all that we do and seek to uh, understand what that role means and why everyone is not in that role but why, in fact, you have made man so that he would be in that role. And if we we do not actually function as your image, uh, we have betrayed you as people who are made to worship you. We thank you for your word, Lord. Let it be a guide to us now, illuminate us, and help, help us understand what it says in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like anything, we have to go back to the beginning. And so going back to the beginning, uh, we're going to turn to Genesis 1. Uh, The idea of the image, it's it's actually the the word image applied to man is not really used that often in Scripture. You would think it was used everywhere by the, the way that you hear it over and over and over again. But it actually isn't used very often. In the Old Testament, it's used in Genesis um, and, uh, and frankly, it's not really used anywhere else in the Old Testament. Again, if you, thought, if you think it's such a huge idea of what man is, you would think it would be used everywhere. But actually, it's just in the book of Genesis that man is called the image. And so let's, let's look uh, at that when we turn to Genesis 1. Now, the first thing to understand when we go to Genesis 1 is we need to understand the nature of what the image is supposed to do and why God makes man as an image. Now, we'll get into the grammar and all that later of of, of the way that's said. But as we begin to read Genesis, the very first thing at the get-go is that God's going to make the heavens and earth. But then there's something that's a bit of an issue in Genesis 1, and we'll see this as well in the parallel in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, Now the earth was tohu vavohu, 
Those are the Hebrew terms used. And darkness was over the surface of the watery deep, but the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And then God says, let there be light, and there's creation that begins. So we see that the problem in the beginning is that there's, there's chaos. Things are not ordered, and then God's going to go on to order them, and then he's going to make human beings. Well, what does tohu vavohu mean in verse 2? Well, when you look at the terms, tohu describes a place like a desert or basically some unlivable area, uh, unlivable to human beings. Obviously, animals could live there, but human beings can't live there. And so you have an earth here covered in water. Well, you could put fish on that earth, maybe. I mean, there's not really a sun and moon and all of that, so maybe there's no warmth. uh, So you probably couldn't even do that. But something, I'm sure, could survive in the water, but humans can't. And we begin to see that the, the problem of chaos, that the, the word chaos itself should describe a place that cannot be inhabited by human beings. That's what tohu means. The word bohu means, and we see this from texts like Jerusalem, for instance, uh, will not be inhabited. And yet there are lots of animals there. Well, bohu then means, we can gather from that, that it's, there, it's a place that is at, uh, just... Uh, deplete of any humans. There's no humans living there. And so the world is a place where it cannot be inhabited by humans, and therefore there are no humans. Now, this is parallel to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is going to be from the perspective of God, heaven to earth, it's cosmic, Elohim is used, all of those sorts of things. So it's, it's from the transcendent view. Genesis 2 is a parallel account But it's going to be from the man's perspective, from the earth to heaven. And so you get the switch. God created the earth and the heavens rather than heavens and earth. And then it's going to be Yahweh Elohim. So it's going to be his personal name, God as he interacts with humanity. And the very first thing made is not not light and, uh, you know, uh, land and all of that sort of thing. The very first thing made in Genesis 2 is going to be the man. And the problem we see in Genesis 2 is that uh, the, the same thing we see in Genesis 1. So in, uh, in verse 5 of Genesis 2, Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So we don't have a place that can be inhabited by humans, just like in Genesis 1, and there are no humans. And so we see then the state of chaos in Genesis 1 and 2 is a state where the world cannot be inhabited by human beings, cannot actually preserve human life. There's no ability for human life to thrive there. It cannot be preserved by it. And so the world is not in a state to support human life. And the other problem is, therefore, there's no human life. And so we see then that chaos is a world without humans and without the ability to support human life. This is very important if we're going to understand what God says of the image and the task he gives to the image. So let's go down now to verse 26. So in verse 26, uh, God is going to make the man. I want us to pay attention to the grammar of the passage very 
carefully because a lot of people don't pay attention to it and they end up concluding wrongly because of it. Then God said, let us make man as our image, like our likeness. So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all creatures that move on the earth. So why is he making man as his image and like his likeness? Because he wants man to subdue the world and rule over it. Now he's going to tell the man how he wants him to subdue it and rule over it. So verse 27 first, God created the man as his own image. As the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. So I want you to notice that the command given to the man is connected to the fact that he is to function as God's image. And I want you to notice that there are prepositions there as God's image, like his likeness. It does not say, let us make man our image. People interpret that as though it's like a, what's called a double accusative. Let us make our image. Let us make man. Let us make man. Let us make our image. As though the man is equal to the image. So to be a human is to be the image ontologically. Now, I would argue that to be a full human is to be the image functionally, but that's talking about humanity as it's to function, not humanity ontologically. And so this is very important. This does not say that God made man and man is an image inherently ontologically. It says, let us make man into an image, as an image. It's called, so in the grammars, it's called a beta sentiae, but in reality, or beta sentiae, but in reality, that's probably not a great term, beta of identity and things like that. In reality, if you look at the verses that are used, it probably should be called something like bait of role or bait of function. Uh, the bait is the Hebrew preposition. Um, so, bus selam, the as an image. And, um, and so, for instance, in Psalm 118.7, Yahweh is with me as, there's the, the bait, my helper. Now, is God ontologically the helper of the psalmist? Or is he functioning in that role as a helper? If you say God is inherently, ontologically, it's a part of his nature, the helper of this man, then you're actually saying that God's nature is dependent upon the man. And that is ridiculous. God is not dependent. So it's, it's not God's nature to, to, help, to be the helper of the man. He's, he's playing that role. He's functioning in that role. Um, Isaiah 40.10. So, Bahuzak uh, Yavo, he will come as a strong man. Was he literally a strong man? Well, no, of course not. Uh, he's just functioning as a straw man. That's the idea. So it's a bait, and I would call it a bait of, therefore, function. A bait of role, bait of function. So let us make man 
as our image means let's take the man and we want him to function as our image. And that is the hour, of course, is referring to God. Um, so that's important. And then like a likeness, same thing. There's the cough preposition in Hebrew. These are not accusatives. Uh, they're, they're talking about a role. So he's going to function like a likeness functions. Well, how does an image function? What, what, what is a likeness function as? Well, here's how it, how it functions a bit. We've talked about this before. Let's reiterate it. A, 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 uh, an image functions for the God as a representative of the God. It is something in which the God dwells and then holds chaos at bay from a particular sphere. So you have an image placed in a temple and that temple is in a city and, and, and that, that image then protects the sphere of that city. It's almost like kind of a, uh, a, a uh, you know, it's, it's a holy place where he protects this sphere and then it kind of has a, a, a uh, residual uh, effect around the city to where the city is protected as well. And so that area, that domain is ruled by that God and that is expressed by the fact that that image is there holding chaos back. So it's working against chaos. And therefore, it functions as the God's image. Now, if something happens to that image, to where it is corrupted, ruined, destroyed in some way, it no longer functions as the image of the deity. So one of two things happens. Usually, if it's made of wood or something that's more perishable, it will be buried. It'll be put into the netherworld. It's dead. It doesn't function as the, the image of the God anymore. If it's made of something like gold or precious metal, it's melted down and remade. Now, there's a lot of analogy we could put there for, for later in Scripture, but I want you to note there that the image is no longer functioning as an image. It's no longer an image of that God. It may be an image, but it's not the image of that God anymore. It cannot function in that way anymore. So it's discarded or it's melted down and remade. Very important. So when we talk about man as the image of God, what are we saying? Well, it means that man functions then as God's medium through which he fights chaos, representing that he rules over that area, which is why he tells the man and the woman, fill up the earth, be fruitful, multiply, Fill up the earth. Why? What's the problem in the beginning? What is chaos in the beginning? There are no humans. So a, a humanless world is chaos. A human-filled world is order and creation. And this is where we talk about what is creational and what is anti-creational. What is anti-creational moves toward the humanless world and the world that cannot be inhabited. A creational trajectory is moving with God, walking with God toward an ordered world that is filled full of his covenant human images. So uh, we'll see this later when it comes to sexuality, of course, but the whole biblical idea of sexuality is that if your sexuality moves toward a filled up world with covenant human beings, it's creational and morally good. 
if it works against that, any sexual act works against that, then you're working toward chaos, which is why it's be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Now, I've said many times, it's, it, it's one command. Be fruitful in order to multiply, multiply in order to fill up the earth, fill up the earth in order to subdue it, subdue it in order to rule over it. That's how God wants man to rule over the world. Not through war, not through, not through bullying, not through just stealing land, not through any of that, not, not through actually doing the opposite of the command by saying, well, I need to rule over the world, so I need to somehow limit my children or something like that. That's, that's misunderstanding the command and how it's all linked as one. Now, the parallel to this is that you have in Genesis 2, again, the man made to function as the image. And so you have imagery there with what's called in Mesopotamia the Mispi uh, ritual. And the Mispi ritual is a ritual where the, the uh, idol is made from clay or something of that nature. And then the priest, uh, functioning as the god doing it, breathes in to the image, the idol, and um, and as as therefore it functions as that, that deity's uh, image, and what it, the the man is given one command. What is it? Well, to cultivate the garden and to not eat of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, but rather to eat of the tree of life. And I would argue that that is a parallel command to Genesis one. That we're not talking about two different commands, but this is the same thing to function as the image through both creational and preservational practices. And so, very important to understand this. If this is the image then, if the image is the one, the image of God is the one in whom God dwells doing creational work in the world, then we understand that that's the, the image is a function that man, uh, that man is to either enter into, or he's a role that he enters into, or it's something that man decides, yeah, I'm not going to do this. And hence, then we get to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have an alternate program offered by the serpent. And he says there that you're not going to die, don't worry about it. Uh, for God knows in that day you'll, you'll have you know, knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God, ka Elohim, uh, not like the, the preposition kaf again, but not on likeness. So you won't be like a likeness of God. You'll actually be like God or gods, but probably God in the context since, since Elohim has been talking about the one deity. And so the promise of the serpent is, is that you'll be like God in what way? Well, you'll be knowers of good and evil. Now, it's very important to understand that knowers in Genesis can refer to someone who has mastered something. So, for instance, Esau is a knower of archery, meaning he's a master of archery. Um, or Ishmael, sorry. One of those, I forget. It's Ishmael or Esau. Uh, but he's a master of artery, uh, of archery. And, um, and so if you understand that knower there means that you'll be masters and therefore they'll be gods because gods are masters of good and evil, not moral good and evil. We haven't been talking about moral good and evil so far. Uh, people, you know, they speculate and like, oh, well, the original man and woman didn't know what was right and wrong. And it's like, of course they did. God just laid out a law for them and told them what was right and wrong. What do you mean? Of course they understood it. 
Now, do they understand the implications? Well, of course not, but that's, that's not the point that the text is making. The text is making uh, the point that, that they're going to be gods uh, in terms of they get to decide what is ordered and creational and what is anti-creational. They will decide that rather than letting God decide it, being in subjection to God. Now, how do we know good and evil mean that? Well, in Genesis 1, the word good is used quite a bit. Is it talking about moral good? Well, no, because in Genesis 1, we're talking about inanimate things. So obviously God is making things like land and plants. Well, those aren't morally good. And in fact, he, he's not calling them morally good. He's just saying they're good. Why are they good? Good tov is the Hebrew word. Tov has the idea of what is ordered, what is, again, creational, what works toward the preservation of human life. What works toward the creation of human life? And so as he makes things in Genesis 1, he creates things that are good, that is ordered. Well, what's the opposite of what's ordered? Well, what is evil? That is, what is chaotic? What is not good? What does not support human life? What does not support the creation of covenant human life? So when he makes the man and the woman, he makes them male and female, he ends up saying that it's uh, tov ma'od, very good, good to the utmost. Why? Because the humans now can be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth. They can function as the image now, as they seek to do what's creational in their sexual activity, and also then in Genesis 2, the cultivating of the world, subduing it in that way. So that's the job of the image. So then you understand that when we get to Genesis 3, and man falls and decides to go with the serpent's program, that he is deciding to no longer function as God's image to where God will indwell him and do his work through him and bringing about covenant human beings filling up the world. But instead, it will be the devil indwelling him and bringing about his work of chaos in the world, bringing in more chaos, pushing humans to go contrary to what God has set up in Genesis 1 and 2 and the commands that the humans are given there and the role that they are supposed to function as in those, in those texts. So in Genesis 3, we have a couple things that are interesting because the, the serpent says you'll be knowers of good and evil, that is, masters of them. God will acknowledge, he'll use the word know as well, yada, but he's going to use it differently. He's going to use it in more of the infinitival form, which is they'll, they'll knowing good and evil. That is, they'll be experiencing, the word yada can mean experience. So like Adam knew his wife, experienced her intimately. Now they're going to experience not just order, but also chaos because they didn't actually trust in God. So they're going to experience not only the good, but also the chaos, the evil, and that will ultimately bring them down to death. They'll return to dust. Uh, because of their knowing good and evil. Again, it's not moral good and evil. They'll know that as well, obviously. But it's talking about, in a more generic uh, sense, uh, order and chaos. What is creational? What is anti-creational? In Genesis 3, a promise is given to the woman, though, that there's going to be two different humanities now that sprout. One will follow God, and they're going to function as his images, and they're going to be sons and daughters of the woman. They'll be the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. 
The woman then linked to, of course, Adam, and Adam linked to God as his image, uh, it to be functioning in that role. But there's going to be another humanity, and that humanity is going to be the, actually the offspring of the devil. And therefore, you see that there's a sonship that's linked to the idea of the image, to where there will be those who are, have the sonship of God. They'll be sons and daughters of God. And there'll be those who are sons and daughters of the serpent. That's what the seed means. That's what offspring is talking about. Not biologically, not ontologically. They're not, they're not inherently one way or the other. They come from the same human, you know, the, the human couple and whatnot, or the same human group or whatever you want to believe on that. But the idea is that they're, 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 they're human. They're all human ontologically. But they're not all human in terms of being functionally the image of God. Instead, some will be the image of God and some will be the image of the serpent. And we see this right away in Genesis 3. So biologically, Cain comes from Eve. He's not from a different source. He's not ontologically different in any way. And yet we understand that the writer is trying to make an argument, literarily, narrative theological argument, that Cain is the serpent's seed. And Abel is the woman's seed, and therefore a godly man who follows God. And that Abel then is the image of God, and Cain is the image of the serpent. There's still images. Man is still an image. But whose image he is depends upon whose son and offspring he is. So then you have from that story, of course, Cain kills Abel because he's a murderer. And then you have the genealogy of Cain given, and the description of Cain's genealogy can be seen in the inclusio of Cain and then Lamech at the end of his genealogy. Cain is a murderer, and Lamech is a murderer. They're both destroyers. Now, what, does, what is murder? Well, it's going contrary to filling up the earth. You're actually taking humans off the earth. You're killing them. You're, you're doing something anti-creational. And so by murdering is anti-creational, therefore Cain's line is, uh, is described as a bunch of destroyers, destroyers of humanity. They might have like one kid or whatever, but that, that doesn't, lar- being fruitful and multiplying and filling up the earth and with covenant children is not what describes them. They build cities and they're doing all these other things to thwart chaos because remember, fallen man functions in the role of trying to be his own God and decide how can I thwart chaos in the way that I want to do it rather than jump on board with what God commanded humanity in the way that they were commanded to do it. Everyone believes in being creational and preservational in their own way. The issue is whether or not you're going to be creational and preservational in terms of what God has laid out versus what you think is right. Hitler wanted to be creational and preservational, and he ended up up murdering six million Jews and probably three million Christians and other races and whatnot because he thought that was creational and preservational. That's not God's program. So that's, that's, every human has that idea. The, The idea is whether you're gonna be your own God and make up what's creational and preservational or whether you're gonna go with what God said is creational and preservational in Genesis 1 and 2, and then, of course, in the things that flow from that trajectory. 
So then we, we get past Cain's genealogy and we get to Abel's genealogy, but it's not Abel because he died. Instead, a, a replacement for Abel is given and it's Seth. And something very fascinating is said of Seth's line that is not said of Cain's line. Seth is said to be made in the image and likeness, and actually the prepositions are switched there. So it's like the image and as the, the bait preposition, as the likeness of Adam, who was made, we know, in, as the image of God and like the likeness of God. And so the image is, is uh, uh, continued, the function of the image, through Seth and Seth's line. And only one characteristic describes all of Seth's line. They all have the same thing in common. You have a variation with, with Enoch because Enoch is said to walk with God. In other words, he's moving in the direction of being creational with God. That's what walking with God means at this point. But all of them are said to basically have the one characteristic. And here's what it is. They have children just like Cain's line does. But then it says this. And, and he had other sons and daughters. And he had other sons and daughters, and he had other sons and daughters, and he had other sons and daughters over and over and over again, showing that they have fulfilled or they're, they're, they're fulfilling the function of the image in that regard. So they function, that, and that notice then, they're then the sons and daughters of the woman. They're the seed of the woman as opposed to the seed of the serpent. And you understand then that the two genealogies, they're not meant to say that there's a race of these people and a race of these people uh, biologically. They're just talking about there's two races in terms of the function and, and whose image each one is, whose sons and daughters each group is. You have this group who are sons and daughters of God, and therefore they're called the image, and therefore they're doing the role of the image by having other sons and daughters filling up the earth and subduing it in that way. And then you have these who are the sons and the descend, the, the offspring of the devil who are destroyers. And they're trying to, you know, they're trying to rule over the earth in, in other ways, like, you know, through, uh, through building cities and, and, and that sort of thing. And then they, you know, they have entertainment, like the gods kind of entertain themselves or whatnot, trying to forget about death and all of that sort of thing. But these guys aren't doing any of that. They're just they're they're totally different. I'm not saying it's bad to build a city, but they're contrasted in that way because these people think this is going to thwart chaos, and these people understand that it's to join God that thwarts chaos. They thus are indwelled by God, and God is working through them, and hence they are walking with God. He's doing creational work through them, and these are destroyers in the world. I mean, the serpent who we know as the devil. I believe, is also the destroyer. He's literally called the destroyer in the Old Testament. Well, if you are uh, in league with the destroyer and you're doing his work in being anti-creational in your life, which is what we ultimately will call sin and the Bible will call sin, then whose image are you? Not God's. You're the devil's image. And of course, we see this all the way when John picks this up, and he's going to talk about how there's the sons of God and the sons of the devil. And you know you're, you know you're the sons of God if, in fact, you've passed over from uh, death to life and from darkness to light. Notice all the Genesis imagery there from Genesis 1. 
You know that you've passed out of all that. Why? Because Christ, who is the image, not an image, the image of the invisible God, you are now joined to him. And being joined to him, you then can now fulfill that role in him. Now, contrast all of, all of this understanding that, well, everybody's the image of God no matter what, with something like Romans 3. Because what people are trying to do is they're trying to put a value on humanity uh, based on the image and, and then say things like, well, I mean, you know, if you, if you don't think man's an image, then, you know, why wouldn't you kill humans and things like that? I don't know why you think that people would kill uh, other people because they're not the image. I mean, you don't go through a neighborhood and kill all the dogs because they're not the image. If you had the ability to kill angels, they're not the image. Would you kill an angel? I mean, it makes no sense. Obviously, creatures all have their role. Humans all have their role. We don't know who's ultimately going to be the image because we understand that people are restored that way in Jesus Christ. And it's not our job. We, we don't function as the destroyers of God. Uh, we function as the heralds of salvation of the gospel that he's brought. Why would we kill anyone? Because they're not the image. We're trying to save the image. We're trying to restore the image of God in people because that's creational. And we as the image are to do what's creational. So it's very important. Romans 3 says all have become worthless. All have become worthless. You think the image of God is worthless? Of course not. It's talking about people apart from Jesus Christ, apart from actually being connected to God again. And so we believe that Jesus Christ connected even Adam back to God, uh, Seth to God, uh, Melchizedek to God. All these people are being connected to God through Jesus Christ. They may not know who Christ is, but God is overlooking their sins, looking toward Christ, Christ's sacrifice applied to them. They're being placed in Christ, regenerated, all of that. And they are made the image in him again. Cain and Cain's line and the type of people that Cain are, that is unbelievers or false believers, are not the image of God. They're not restored to the image. They're not connected to Jesus, who is the image. And since there's only one image and it's Christ and you're not in it, if you're not in it, you cannot be the image of God. So this constant idea that, well, all men are God's image. No, they're not. And what's happening is, is that what's creeping in is the fatherhood of God ideology. Because if we're all linked to God in some special relationship with God covenantally, now obviously all humanity has the obligation to fulfill the covenant, but the whole point is all humanity breaks it. They're not in covenant with God unless they're restored in Jesus Christ. So the idea that all men, regardless, are connected to God in some sort of covenant with God because they're his image is a, a uh, catalyst toward a Christless theology, a Christless anthropology. That's why it was adopted by the Enlightenment. That's why you have the fatherhood of God uh, idea. Now, we're going to talk about the brotherhood of man being crept in, being brought back in through the neighbor later on, but I want to go through these image, image passages in the next couple of weeks first. So I want you to notice as a foundation then, this idea is creeping into the church. It has crept into the church. In fact, it's taken over the church. I hear it from pastor's mouth. Entire ministries are set on the idea that all humanity is the image of God, 
Now, I actually think that their ministries are not. I think they could remove that idea. I think they could change it. I think they could, to, could turn away from the idea and into a more biblical understanding without uh, ruining anything in their ministry. They would just simply have to stop telling people that they're valuable as the image of God. When Romans 3 says they're worthless as people who are not the image of God. So if you want to be valuable, then you need Jesus Christ. And you then, therefore have Christ as center of your theology and anthropology. Instead, you have a Christless anthropology being preached by numerous preachers, and Christ is like brought in at the end. Well, you know, Christ has needed to kind of restore, kind of fill in the cracks, but you're already, there's some value there though already without him. No, there isn't. You're called worthless. Like how, how less much of value do you, can you have other than being worthless? Like, I mean, you're not even worth a penny. It's, it's worth less. Nothing. You have no worth. So it's only in Jesus Christ that people have that worth because only the image of God has that value in, in those terms. Very important to understand. So next week, we're going to talk about Genesis 9. I think that Genesis 9 uh, gets people caught up, uh, uh, kind of hung up, because in fact, they, um, it's an ambiguous passage. And it's unfortunate for evangelicals that they tend to get their theology from ambiguous passages the most. It's the most ambiguous. All the other passages that talk about the image, they're not really ambiguous. What we just talked about seems very clear. Uh, what, what muddies the waters is the ambiguity of Genesis 9. Now, I'm going to talk about in the fact that it's not really that ambiguous if you interpret it and you understand, you follow the theology that has come before it and understand what was laid out before Genesis 9, and then you understand the, you know, the, uh, the layout of the passage and all of that. But if you ignore all that and you just want to read it the way you've traditionally read it, then it's going to sound like, well, maybe all men are the image which completely negates everything that was just said in you know, Romans, or, sorry, Genesis 1 through uh, 5 that we, we uh, talked about. Um, so very important to understand then, just as a foundation, we'll recap. Uh, man is made to be the image of God as an image, to function in that role, and that true humanity, the ultimate fulfillment of humanity is found in that role, and he has a sonship with God. He is in covenant with God. That's what the image of God is. God works and dwells in him, works through him to fulfill his mission. Um, so he's walking with God through one who's walking with him, through one that represents him, thwarting chaos in whatever area the image is, uh, filling up the world with other images. And the image of the devil is doing the opposite of that. It's working against that. Now, God, of course because he's the awesome chess player that he is, he's going to use everything, rocks, trees, unbelievers, everything, to do his will instead of the devil's will. But we're talking about, on a, a secondary cause level, the devil is using mankind, the fallen mankind, to do his will, working through it, and therefore it's functioning as his image, which is why you have a lot of reformers and reform confessions say that man now is not God's image. He is, in fact, the devil's image, apart from Christ. When he is restored to Christ, and we'll see this when we go through New Testament passages, uh, he now must live in the, the, the image of God that is now being created and renewed 
um, in, in that role that God has set for him. So the, the new man is being created or renewed in what? Well, in the image of its creator, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. It's going to use all those terms or refer to all those terms. So um, that's essentially it. That's the foundation. Understanding that the image of God is a role, it's a function of man, helps us understand that man is no longer that image then. And so what does God do with this fallen image um, that now is, is no longer functioning for him? He can't indwell it. He can't, he, he's not going to be able to work with it. Uh, instead, he does one of two things. He either melts it down and remakes it because it's made of gold. It's made of that soil that Christ talks about, the, the good soil. Not because the man inherently is, but obviously we believe through further theology in the Bible, that man is regenerate, and therefore uh, he's, he's uh, made into gold as he's connected to Jesus Christ. But then what, it, what happens to the rest of the, the so-called, you know, the destroyed image, who are now no longer functioning as God's image at all? Well, they're cast away. They're exiled. They're removed from the land of the living, just like uh, an idol of wood. It's buried. It no longer is in the land of the living. It's no longer functioning in the land of the living. It's exiled to death. That's exactly what God will do with humanity. The two humanities, one he will deliver, one has his wrath upon it, and he will destroy, removing them from the created order to a place that we call hell. And if you find yourself today as the devil's image rather than God's, then I implore you to receive Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, take upon his worth, which is all worth and value that God will give to you and place upon you through him, that you might be restored both as God's image, functioning as God's image, and as, uh, as a son of God, who then has a real covenant relationship with God. As of right now, you are foreigners to the covenant. You are without God in the world, Ephesians says. You are dead in your sin. You're dead. No image that's dead functions in the living world as it should. You are not the image of God, but you can be in Jesus Christ again. You can be restored through justification. You can, through the Holy Spirit, in sanctification, through your works that can become, again, uh, the, the, uh, in the role of the image, doing the things the image is to do. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you will be glorified with Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, ruling over the world uh, as an eternal message that God rules over all creation through you, who he has made king of the world through his son. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I know this is hard for a lot of people to say. I'm sure they find it weird. They're taught a a particular tradition. And uh, whenever traditions are so firmly rooted, they're difficult to root out. Lord, I pray that you give a teachable mind to whoever hears this, that they would study these scriptures, look at them honestly, and understand the argument that's being made through the narrative, uh, that, that we might understand that not all are your sons, not all are your images, and that these two ideas are linked. They're not separate ideas. 
that some are in fact are the descendants, the offspring of the devil, and others are descendants and offspring of the woman. And that means some are the image of God and some are the image of the devil. And apart from Jesus Christ, the image is not restored in man at all. We thank you then, Lord, for your word and seek that you would be glorified. Help us understand not to unite humanity through a false anthropology, but rather see unity as only possible in Jesus Christ. Silence those who are saying that the answer is for us to all see each other as, our, as one of the image of God, as, as brothers to one another in that way. Father, we are not brothers to the images of the devil, but we should be doing the work of the image, finding our brothers among them through the gospel and our preaching of the gospel. Lord, give us boldness then to do so in your name. Amen.